You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 35th Psalm. The 35th Psalm. Of David. Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of Yahweh driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. Let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Yahweh, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is strong for, too strong for him. The poor and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Yahweh, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, let those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not seek peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Yahweh. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awaken and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ha, our hearts desire, and let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. 
Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, You are perfect in righteousness and justice and holiness and judgment and wrath. Just as you are perfect in love and mercy and grace and covenant love. And you are worthy of praise altogether in all that you do. You are good. Father, forgive us. No doubt every one of us have had occasions where we have been embarrassed by something of who you declare yourself to be in your word. Convict us. May we not just feel conviction for our embarrassment. Turn our eyes to behold you in all that you are, in all that you declare and reveal yourself to be. And leave us in awe and show us the beauty and wonder of the wholeness of who you are. And fill our mouths with praises unashamed, zealous praise. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. What are we to do with the imprecatory psalms? These psalms where David calls down curses on his enemies. An imprecation is a spoken curse. We've encountered a number of imprecations as we've gone through the Psalter up to this point, but it's as if here we have a compilation track. Every curse we've encountered so far gathered up into one. This is easily the most imprecatory psalm we've encountered so far. The constant let, 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 or your translation might have may, lets you know that this is so. What are we to do? With these imprecatory psalms, I'm afraid the most common answer is to be embarrassed by them. Avoid them, hide them, don't mention them, and if someone brings them out of the closet, then apologize for them. Maybe say something like, well, that's Old Testament. I hope you find such embarrassment embarrassing. What are we to do with them? Sing them. If that thought makes the church at large uncomfortable, I believe the reason is not that the church has become so loving, but she's become so soft. And as odd as it might seem to many, 
the medicine for a soft church is poetry. What James Adams calls the war psalms of the Prince of Peace. But as we learned in Psalm 34, it requires wisdom to sing the songs of our King, of our God. But it's not our tongues that need instruction, nor our eyes in reading heaven's music. It's our souls that need to be taught. And the chief lesson that we learned in Psalm 34 is that we need to learn the fear of the Lord in order to sing these psalms. And if you fear God, if you truly revere Him, will you not hate it when His name is blasphemed? And if you, if you, if you get that, you begin to make some headway in properly appropriating these imprecatory psalms. The problem is, though, we don't know how to read poetry anymore. And this despite the fact that God in His wisdom designed Hebrew poetry so that it doesn't major on meter or rhyme, but that it's, it's this thought rhyme structure that holds it together, making it very translatable. We call this thought rhyme structure parallelism. And despite this, we still have problems reading God's poetry, which is revealing. It says that our problem is that our hearts are out of meter with heaven. Because our thoughts are out of harmony with heaven's wisdom. Instead of reading the Psalms in the fear of the Lord... We go to them really wanting to express ourselves. Now, the Psalms are full of expressed emotion and they help you to rightly express your emotion. But the focus isn't on us expressing ourselves. The focus is on that which evokes such expression. The context of the Psalms is covenantal. We approach them in this individualistic way that's all about us. And they're not only simply covenantal, the chief covenant that's in view again and again throughout the Psalms is the Davidic covenant. If you want to read the Psalms right, this thought must be at the fore of your mind almost, in almost every instance as you read through the Psalms, and that is king and kingdom. When you take up the Psalms, be thinking king and kingdom. O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Flow of the Psalms, speaks of the first and second psalm as pillar psalms. They welcome us into the temple of worship that is the Psalter. And those pillar psalms help you to understand the whole of the psalms. The second psalm helps you to understand all the imprecatory psalms. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in, heaven, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill." If we're embarrassed by the war psalms of the Prince of Peace, 
The answer is that we're more concerned about our own name than we are zealous for the name of God's King, that it be exalted above all. As we turn to examine this psalm, we have three laments. And you can see them because every one of them ends with a resolve to praise. There's, there's much that's cyclical as we look at these three laments, but they are distinct. The first and the last ones are the ones that are full of imprecations. And that middle section, verses 19 through, uh, uh, excuse me, verses uh, 18 through, 11 through 18, I'll get it. Verses 11 through 18, in that section, David makes a series of accusations concerning those that he's pronouncing these imprecations on. So the first cycle, verses 1 through 10, opens with some introductory petitions, verses 1 through 3, that pave the way for a litany of imprecations that follow in verses 4 through 8. Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. He opens with this, it's a legal metaphor. Uh, The contending there has the idea of bringing an accusation against, bringing charges against. That's followed with a martial metaphor, a war image. Fight against those who fight against me. And it moves from this position of defense, shield and buckler, to offense, uh, spear and javelin. And then David ends this asking God to say to him, I am your salvation. See, here's, here's one of those indications of how you're reading the Psalms. If you come to it in this kind of individualistic way, this experiential way, this way that's all about you expressing and you experiencing, you, you read this, this might be the one verse in this imprecatory Psalm that you're like, yep, that one's good. Don't know about the rest of it, but that one's good. God say to me, I am your salvation. And you're, you're waiting for this experience in this voice. That is nothing of what David is speaking of. When he says, God say to me, I am your salvation, the way David wants God to say that is by his providence in delivering David and vindicating him. Say to me, by your acts, I am your salvation. Now, those petitions are imprecations. Imprecations are petitions that we bring before God. But those aren't the ones that, that can bother some people, but those aren't the ones that really bother most people as they're reading through the Psalms. It's whenever David turns to directly curse his enemies, such as we have in verse 4 and following, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. May they be shamed and subverted in their aims. May they be dishonored and disappointed. Now, if the curses of these psalms seem alien to you, I'd say the first thing to ask to, to diagnose your own soul and as to why is perhaps the war that the psalms are speaking of is alien to you. Perhaps the reason why is because you're not really standing beside your king. Perhaps you're not part of his kingdom. You may have people who don't like you. Those with whom you can't get along. And I hope you rightly realize it would be evil for you to call down curses on those who frustrate you, annoy you, even those who just don't like you, you don't get along with them. 
But have you ever been in the position of, say, a Richard Wormbrand, who under communist Russia was pursued, captured, imprisoned, tortured in efforts to get him to disclose information concerning the underground church in communist Russia so that those persons could then be captured, tortured, many of them killed. And you see Richard Wormbrand crying out again and again and working again and again for the salvation of those who imprison him. But yet, in that setting, can you not also cry out concerning the system as a whole God? Bring it down. Bring your judgment on those who hate your bride. See, in that setting, the, the reason you would cry out in such a way is, is not simply that they hate you, but they hate your king and they hate his bride. And if we live so softly, we should, we should have pause in condemning these hard psalms. Rather, they should stir us to live zealously for our king. The next set of imprecations, though, brings out just how devastating, how terrifying this curse is, verse 5. We shouldn't take this lightly either. The way to, to get over our, our dis-ease at these psalms is not to, to take lightly the curse that's being pronounced. Let them be like chaff before the wind, which the angel of Yahweh, with the angel of Yahweh driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. A very good case, I don't have time to make it this morning, but a very good case can be made that the angel of Yahweh here and most often throughout the Old Testament is a reference to Christ. What does it look like when the Son of God pursues His enemies? Then I saw heaven opened. Behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. All of a sudden, these imprecations don't sound so Old Testament anymore. David, as he cries out here, Prefigures, prefigures and anticipates our Lord in His humiliation. And the answer to His cry in its fullness is our Lord returning in vindication. A suffering king cries out to the king of glory to deal with his foes. David was a shadow Christ is the substance. Their hatred of David here is an expression of their hatred of the angel, the messenger of Yahweh, the word of God. Now, for what reason does David plea such curses? It's not simply 
that they seek his life and devise evil against him, verse 4. It's that they do all this, verse 7, without cause. Again, without cause. Don't think of these psalms in light of you and your little inconveniences and annoyances and irritations in dealing with frustrating, irritating, angry, and sinful men. Think of the injustice, the wickedness, the plotting, the scheming, the blasphemy, the slander, the hatred of God's King without cause. Without cause. He's worthy of all glory And they hate Him. They would crucify Him afresh if they could. But because they cannot get to Him, they go after His body, His bride, His church. And they do so. Though she is sinful, though she is imperfect, in in their angst, in in their reason for attacking her, they do so without cause. Without cause. Read the psalm in this way. And you won't be jolted by the poetic justice that David is crying out for. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it. To his destruction. Let them fall into their own traps. Surprised. And, and don't you sense with this now. This, this poetic justice. In, in more ways than one. That they're... they're, they're What's falling upon them is what they've plotted for the king. But that David is also expressing it poetically. David's not unhinged. His emotions have not run wild without check. He has paused to reflect and pin this prayer in a strict and rigid manner. Reflecting upon his God and he's, he's recognizing and admitting in all of this, vengeance is the Lord's. And if it's his, it's right and good that we should long for him to exercise it. And when justice comes... David determines to rejoice. Then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exulting in His salvation. Verse 10, all my bones will say, O Yahweh, who is like you? It's one thing to plea for justice. It's another thing to rejoice in it. But this, this, this justice that's rejoiced in, don't you see? It is God's salvation. How can He not rejoice in it? When a serial rapist or a child molester is justly sentenced, and justice would mean the death penalty, whenever they are justly sentenced, would it be wrong for the victims to rejoice Categorically wrong for them to rejoice. When Nazi leaders were charged with war crimes related to the Holocaust, and many of them sentenced to death by hanging, was it wrong for survivors to rejoice at justice? Should the pro-choice movement be exposed for the wretched lie that it is? 
and the Democratic Party be seen to bowing at the altar of Molech. And abortionists recognized and then chargeable with murder. Saints, should that happen? Should we not rejoice? And if that's the case, if you can't sense that with all of those things, well, whenever God's King rises triumphant from the grave with the promise to return in majesty and inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, so that they will uh, be away from the presence of Him forever. Is it wrong to rejoice and long for this? Is it wrong for God to be God? Is it wrong for the saints to long for God to be God? No, with all of our bones may we say, Oh, Yahweh, who is like you? And whenever we say that, may we look at the totality of who He is with adoration and reverence. Whenever Yahweh revealed the meaning of His name to Moses, He did so, proclaiming His name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Saints, what you see in this psalm is God. And you see both His justice and His mercy. Indeed, what you see is justice come as an expression of mercy. Here you see both His salvation and His judgment. And His salvation come by judgment. The chief longing that this psalm should stir in your heart is for the manifest vindication of God's King over all the earth. He's risen in glory and may He return so that that glory is seen and every knee bows and every tongue confesses He is Lord. Yes, we should long for every one of our enemies to come to know the grace and mercy of our King. Because we were exactly where they stood, if not for God's grace. Yes, pray that that persecutor might be a Paul. Pray that that abortionist might repent like Manasseh of his worship of Molech. Pray that that criminal, as he awaits the day of his execution, might hear the gospel of Christ, repent and believe, so that whenever he does die, he wakes in the presence of our Lord in paradise. 
sinner. Know that the wrath that's threatened against you here, our Lord Himself bore. He dishes out nothing that He is not Himself born. And if you would believe and trust in Him, there is salvation and grace. And saints, we long for that. But let none of that curb your desire for God to be fully God. To be all that He's revealed Himself to be. With all your bones, behold Him and say, Who is like you in all your perfections? In the next section, instead of a litany of curses, you find a litany of accusations, verses 11 through 18. The first accusation concerns their false accusations. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things that I do not know. Their concern isn't truth. It's just David's demise. Imagine a political climate. It's going to be a stretch, but imagine a political climate where accusations are made against opponents, not for the cause of righteousness and justice and truth, but simply to bring the other guy down and elevate self. And we hear the lies. We know that most often worse things are true of both parties involved. Truly stretch your imagination. Think that God has chosen His King. A man after His own heart. A righteous and just King. And then see all the schemes, the plots, the hatred coming against Him without cause, without cause. See them pouring down upon Him as thick as a May thunderstorm. See the crowds crying out for His crucifixion. Hear the priest of accusing Him of insurrection. And it gets worse. Because like David, they do all of this repaying for David, for our Lord, evil for good. They return evil for good. God so humbled himself, and man was proud. With David, when he hears of their sickness, he mourns and he weeps, he tells us, verses 13 through 14. But whenever they hear of his stumbling, they take opportunity, they pounce, they tear at him, they gnash at him with their teeth, verses 15 and 16. This is the wickedness bound in every human heart. God has a king, and men hate him, revile him. Whenever he comes down in humility, they would see opportunity to pounce and crucify him and bring him down to the grave. Now from these accusations, David turns to lament in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. You have to see that these curses that David is pronouncing are bound up with his cries for deliverance. 
One might say, well, yes, yes, I understand this in regards to God's king. I can understand God's king, his enemies seemingly triumphant over him. I can understand praying this psalm in that setting, but our Lord is risen, so these psalms are not pertinent anymore. Christ is risen, but he has wed himself inseparably from his bride, whom he refers to as his body. Whenever Saul was ravaging the church, the risen Christ floored him, asking, why are you persecuting me? Imagine if David was somehow rescued and and delivered from immediate threat from his foes, but those foes have taken his wife, wives. Do you think he would cease to cry out as he does here at that moment just because his skin is safe? When deliverance comes for David, he anticipates it to be. This is his resolve at that time. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Will we not sing with praise when His deliverance and salvation comes in full on that day? But something even greater is being promised here than, than the, the kingdom, the subjects of the king rejoicing at the, at the deliverance of their king. The king is the one singing, leading them in worship. Astounding to think of the one David anticipates here, singing over his people. And if you're in doubt that that's true, it's made clear in Zephaniah 3. God promises salvation by judgment. He says, I'll clear away your enemies. And for that reason, he calls on them to sing, but he not only calls on them to sing in Zephaniah 3 because of that deliverance. He promises He will sing over them on that day. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. If you don't like the imprecatory Psalms, do you see what you miss? You miss your king rescuing his bride and delighting over her as a bridegroom does his bride. The final section opens with David pleading that those who rejoice over his stumbling, those that hate him without cause, that they not be allowed to gloat. Rejoice. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongful let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause, and it's just here with that phrase, without 
cause. Hate me without cause. That all questions concerning how you should understand the imprecatory psalms can be laid to rest. In John 15, 18-19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he shortly goes on to say, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus says this imprecatory psalm is about him. Jesus was not embarrassed by the 35th psalm. He says, rather, it has to be fulfilled. Do you wish that the enemies of God were able to gloat and rejoice over the demise of God's King? And can you not see with Christ's words also the the connection between the hatred of Christ and the hatred of His church? But if you only come at the Psalms in a kind of individualistic sense, if you're failing to think in terms of king and kingdom, I understand why you would have pause at such lyrics. The tragedy though is if, if you read the Psalms in this kind of way, you live your life in that kind of way. You think you're about Christ perhaps, but, but you're really about this expression and experience that all centers on you still. You don't think of the world in terms of the reality that the, the Psalms paint for us. This dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked. That there is God's king and his kingdom. And the forces of this world arrayed against it. But the saints, whenever they are confronted with the truth of Holy Scripture, rejoice at the resurrection of their Lord. And they long for His triumph over all His foes. And they hope for His manifest vindication in their salvation. He was vindicated by His resurrection, exalted at the right hand of the Father. But His manifest vindication before the all the world will mean the resurrection of His body, the church. Upon what grounds does David make this plea? Again, verses 20 and 21. This time, it's their, not only their false accusations against him, but their deceit of the people. For they speak not peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. King and kingdom are bound together. In their malicious attacks and accusations and slander of the king, they deceived the people. And the king's vindication is their salvation. Now, from the false speaking of, of these 
enemies of the king. Verse 21, you turn to the true sight of God and is longed for speaking. You have seen, O Yahweh, be not silent. God has seen, David knows this, and he longs that he speak, vindicating him, delivering him, and, and that he do so according to his righteousness. You have seen, O Yahweh, be not silent. O Yahweh, O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness. Let them not rejoice over me. According to your righteousness. God made a covenant with David that he would have a son who would build him a house And God would establish His throne forever. God in righteousness is faithful to His covenant promise. This Davidic covenant being spoken of and referenced throughout the Psalms, especially in Psalms like this. This Davidic covenant is a covenant made with Christ. And God was faithful to it. Establishing His throne forever. Listen to the way the book of Acts speaks again and again of the resurrection of our Lord. And think of it in terms of God vindicating His King according to His righteousness. Peter preached on Pentecost, Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised Him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter, addressing the crowds at the temple, said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life, whom God Raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. When brought before the rulers, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by Him, this man is standing before you well. Paul told Cornelius, or Peter, excuse me, Peter told Cornelius, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him the third day. Now Paul, preaching at the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia, said, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they asked him, they, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God Raised him from the dead. 
in preaching the gospel, the good news of Christ, do you not see that time and time again, Peter and Paul frame it such that it is an answer to this imprecatory psalm. The good news of the gospel is that God heard this prayer and vindicated His Son and has exalted Him to His right hand so that all enemies will be put under His feet. Saints, they did not get their heart's desire. They did not swallow Him up. All His enemies who rejoice at His calamity in heaven and on earth, have been and will manifestly be put to shame and disappointed. And for this reason, saints, rejoice. Let those who delight in my righteousness, David says, shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of His servant. The saints... Delight in the king's righteousness. And those who delight in his righteousness upon his deliverance. Praise God. That God delights in the king's welfare. The king his servant. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. If If Israel could delight in having a righteous king, how much more can we? Because our king's righteousness is our righteousness. David's righteousness was their deliverance and their good. How much more? Jesus' ours. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's counted as ours by faith. And for this reason, we shout and we're glad and we proclaim Christ. Praise be to Yahweh, praise be to God the Father, who so delights in the life of His Son. Because if Jesus did not rise, as Paul says, we are still in our sins. And our faith is in vain. Because Christ was not only delivered up for our trespasses, Romans 4.25 says He was raised for our vindication. He was raised for our vindication. Now, normally, whenever we think for our justification, excuse me, Romans 4.25, He was raised for our justification. Normally, when we think of our justification, we think of the life of Christ. His perfect obedience to the Father from His, His breath, well, from His conception even, unfathomably, He wasn't ever a sinful baby. His perfect obedience from conception to the cross in His last breath. Every one of His breaths rendered in obedience to the Father. That's the righteousness with which you're clothed by faith. So normally we think of of justification and righteousness being counted to us. We think of the life of Christ. So what does Romans 4.25 mean? When it tells us that he was raised for our justification. Whenever Paul didn't just right after that, chapter 5 goes on to tell us that it's by his act of obedience that we're counted righteous. How do we square that? Jesus' resurrection was his vindication. 
the world through false accusations against him so hard that he was such a bloody mess he could not be recognized. But three days later, our God raised him from the grave, clean and radiant, showing that none of those accusations stuck. He was indeed perfectly righteous and without cause. All their accusations came. And thus, vindicated is a public declaration that He is indeed righteous. Ergo, you're righteous. The King is righteous. You're righteous. The King's vindication is a demonstration of the solidity of your justification. And thus, He's righteous, you're righteous, because He rose, you will rose. Delight in the righteousness of the King. Praise the Father who so delighted in the life of the King. And to close out this psalm, David once again, as with every section, ends with a resolve to praise. Then shall, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David here is leading those who love him and delight in him as God's righteous servant to praise the God who delights in his life and welfare. For all eternity, as we delight in the Son and his righteousness, which is ours, the Son will lead us to delight in the Father who so loved us that He gave us such a Son. A Father who so loves His Son that He raises Him from the grave and seats Him at His right hand above every foe. For all eternity, the Son, by the Spirit, will lead us to worship the Father who delights in the Son. What a blessed circle we will be caught up in. And perhaps it's not until we realize the delight of the persons of the Trinity in one another that we can then recognize the justice and righteousness and beauty and glory of such music. This is a song cursing those who curse the Father's love for His Son. None apologetically would say, May everyone who hates that love either know salvation by a judgment that came on the Son, or may that be judged. But may it not persist. May all opposition and hatred of God's King be brought to nothing, either by salvation or judgment. And I know my God, and I know He's good, and I trust Him that the lines will fall perfectly in that, where they need to. Yes, let us long for sinners to be saved just as we were. But ultimately, this psalm is a pleading for the fullness of our salvation that we've been given in Christ. Saints, 
It is not an evil to long for your God to be God and to be fully God. The good news is that God has answered this psalm in vindicating His King, raising Him from the dead. And we proclaim that message and that all who would believe that message would know His steadfast covenant love eternally. And we also proclaim that He will return and manifest glory, fully delivering His bride. That she may be forever with Him, be led and worshipped by Him. And to that, the saints respond, praying, longing, praising, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your King. May we be zealous for His name. Unashamed of who He has revealed our triune God to be. May we not be ashamed of our King and His humility. May we not be ashamed Of him and his exaltation. May our heart's desire. Be a praise. And a longing. For all of who you are. For you to be God. In all of your glory and wonder. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.